And all God's people said amen, right? Wow, thank you so much today for this time we've had in worship. You know, as I was praying this week about our services today and and also just all the activities this weekend, it, it occurred to me that uh, this is my 40th year to lead a church during the Christmas season. And uh, obviously I was about eight when I began this journey. But as I reflected on it, I thought about all these years of leading churches during the Christmas season and the kinds of things that I hear about it. And I know it's Christmas. And, um, and a lot of people, they, they think they, you want to just keep things light. You know, there are a lot of Christmas stories and holiday traditions and things that make the Christmas season festive. I remember one year, I don't even remember when it was, but it was here I chose to preach a pretty heavy sermon during the holiday season. And uh, I got a note that week from one of our church members that said, I came to church, brought my family, my friends, and we wanted to just have a Christmas service and you had to go and preach that. Do you not know who's there on Sunday morning during the holidays? <clears throat> I thought, well, okay. Um, but with all that said, um, this year we've chosen somewhat of a heavy, challenging theme, and that is the incarnation. Why does it matter? Um, this is a deep theological conversation. And so as we were preparing for it, I've, I've been burdened about that because in my society, I think that it's difficult to have deep conversations. Everybody lives on the surface and they just move from one thing to another really quickly. I remember years ago, Calvin Miller challenged me on that issue and the image that Calvin gave me was there's a difference between a scuba diver and a snorkeler. And he says, this culture snorkels and talks like they're scuba divers. That's an interesting image. Well, if you're going to talk about the incarnation, it's more akin to scuba diving than snorkeling. And we've taken it seriously this year. If you were here last Sunday night, the musical that our worship ministry presented was built around a very deep conversation, the incarnation. In fact, there's one section in the musical from last Sunday night that was simply titled, He Is. And it is a 15 or 16 minute um, time with a beautiful orchestral piece that Brock wrote. But the text that our church members read, that Aaron put together, is this deep, thoughtful excursus on the, the grand, sweeping, biblical narrative of the incarnation. In fact, I, I was telling someone this week, I, I think we could take that and turn that into a Bible study. You could watch that video for a while and just reflect on who he is. Because we believe the incarnation matters. And it is a deep conversation. And I want us to embrace it as best we can. So this morning, 
Uh, and next Sunday morning, I'm going to ask you to, to recognize we have, we have a little work to do. And we're, we need to learn even better, in my opinion, in this society, how to reflect theologically. And so I'm going to invite you to do that with me this morning. I want us to reflect together theologically. And I want you to know that as we move into next year, in 2024, we're really going to challenge all of us to do that on a deeper level. As we make our way into next year, one of the things you're going to notice that's a little bit different is I'm not going to be suggesting daily Bible readings in 2024. Instead, I'm going to build a sermon on Sunday morning and our worship team is going to build a worship service on Sunday morning around a central truth. And then we're going to give you a passage for that week. Not a daily text, but a weekly passage. And we're going to ask you to focus on that passage for the week. Reflect upon it more deeply. And we're going to give you a devotional guide and we're going to challenge you to think through and meditate through and reflect upon the truths that are taught in that passage of scripture for that entire week. Our theme for 2024 is together. And so this devotional guide is going to have two sections to it. You're going to have one section that will be entitled Together in Word, where we'll be asking you to, together as a church family, to explore the very same biblical passage for that entire week. And then we're going to have a section entitled Together in Deed, and we're going to offer you some suggestions about how to take the insights gained in that biblical reflection and actually put it into practice that week. And we want us to do that together and to share how God is leading us in our own theological formation and our discipleship where transformation takes place. And so next year is really going to be, on the one hand, a very practical experience of being together, but it's also going to be a challenge to us to learn even better how to reflect theologically and how to think deeply about the scripture. And so we want to, I wanted to let you know that's where we're headed. Now we're in the Christmas season and the Christmas season offers us opportunities to have conversations about the incarnation. In fact, if, if you wanted to uh, just give someone a place to go, they can always go to whydoesitmatter.org. And on that website right now, it's about Christmas. There's a message from me about what, why Christmas matters and then there's information that will help someone learn how better to follow Jesus. And so we're in a great season of the year to introduce those conversations. But you and I as Christians, we have to actually know why we're doing it. And that's really what I'm after with us on this journey, is to help us to think even more deeply as to why we're doing all this. And background music is always awesome. It's in, I mean, we use it in movies and TVs. You just never know, TV shows. But with that said, um, I want us to have a brief conversation this morning, and I'll, it'll be more fleshed out next Sunday morning on Christmas Eve, about the incarnation. And so if you have your Bibles, look with me at John 1. Obviously, this is the text we're going to turn to if we're going to have this conversation. Today, we're going to talk about just the eternal nature of who the Son of God is. So the eternal Son, Son of God, just the, just the opening section from John 1. And so let's look at it together, and I'll invite you to stand with me as, as our custom when we hear the gospel read at our church, where John begins his gospel this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. 
The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Thank you. You can be seated. All year long, we have been reading, studying, exploring the Gospel of John. And we're reading through it right now in our daily Bible readings as we bring this year to an end. And what John is doing in his Gospel is he's doing something amazing. Uh, William Hull used to be the Dean of Theology at Southern Seminary in in, um, Louisville. Here's his opening message about the Gospel of John. I've shared this with y'all before. He says, the Gospel of John is at once the easiest and hardest book in the Bible to understand. Here, simplicity and sublimity are inseparably united. Theology has been put into monosyllables, yet they express one of the most breathtaking visions of ultimate reality to be found in Scripture. What Dean Hall means by that is that this theology has been put into monosyllables. Word, flesh, world, truth, way, life, light. Um, Those are the words that John uses. John's an interesting book. One of my professors at Southwestern used to say, babies can swim in John's gospel and elephants can drown. On the one hand, it has a simple message. On the other hand, it has a profoundly deep theological message. Because John, on the one hand, is inviting his readers to hold on and understand and appreciate their Jewish heritage. That's what about the past. But he's also sharing a message about the Christian faith and clarifying it in the present. But he's also pointing them to their calling to evangelize the world and take the gospel to the Gentiles. That was a word about the future. Uh, Dean Hull outlines all of that in his commentary on the Gospel of John. So today, I'm going to ask you to put your, just for a couple of minutes, put your theological hats on. Is that okay? And instead of a lighthearted Christmas message, let's reflect on some deep theology, all right? Let's start with the word logos. That's the Greek word that you find in this text. And it is the Greek term for word. Now, we're familiar with that word logos because it's found its way into the English language. Terms like logistics or logical or um, analogous. You see that L-O-G-O. You find it used often in the English language. It, It simply means word or utterance or speech. In the Greek New Testament, it's found over 300 times. Sometimes it just means word, to speak to utter something. It's actually a mathematical term. It came out of the accounting uh, arena in the Greek world. It means to count or to collect, to give an account. But here's what's interesting about that word. That word was captured by philosophers and theologians to express, to attempt to express something incredibly profound. And, And so it was a word that was used often in John's day. Everybody had an idea about the logos, whether you were Jewish or Gentile. It was kind of a word that was used across the culture, and so many people had ideas about it. It's kind of like today, we have, um, we have the phrase theory of everything, but as people are attempting to do that. Or another phrase that captures people's attention in our culture is the phrase critical theory. Critical theory is just the attempt to look at a culture and understand why the culture behaves as it does. And you can take critical theory and apply it to just about any arena you would like to. It's been most controversially applied in recent conversations in America with regards to race. 
But the phrase critical theory is an academic theory. It's an academic discipline. It's a desire of academics to try to figure out what is actually happening underneath a culture. And if you use that phrase right now among academics, it gets everybody's attention because everybody understands and has an idea about how to use it. Um, in fact, it's being used now in theological circles uh, predominantly uh, as we're trying to better understand what's really going on in our world. In fact, the Christianity Today has just given the Book of the Year Award to this book right here by Christopher Watkins. It's entitled Biblical Critical Theory. It's an attempt to take this discipline of an a analyzing a cultural and its expression and what motivates it and what's underneath it. Well, John lived in a day where that was happening. The byword, the buzzword in John's day, logos. Everybody had an opinion about it. So what did it mean for people? Well, if you were a Hebrew, if you were a Jew, then that view was this. Logos represented everything that was divine, sovereign energy, wisdom, word of God. Think about how the book of Genesis describes creation. How was creation brought into being? God spoke it. In Greek, that's the word logos. How did the prophets hear anything from God? They heard a word from God, logos. And so if you were talking to a Jew, and someone who was a Jewish theologian in John's day, he would qualify as one of those. He was a Jewish theologian. Well, the word logos had a certain meaning. It was powerful. It was, it was the revelation of God. It was the sovereign energy of God. Sometimes it was referred to as the wisdom of God. Everything was brought into existence by the divine logos. But John didn't just live in a Jewish world. John lived in a Greek world. And so for the Greeks, they had a view of that word also. For them, this was the core philosophical principle, ultimate meaning of the universe. When the Greeks used this word philosophically, they, they had this idea. You have these thoughts and this ability to reason within you as a human being. You're, you're a rational creature. Why are human beings rational creatures? Why are human beings able to make rational decisions? Why does the universe seem to work? Why, why does there seem to be some kind of order in all of creation? Well, the Greek philosophical view was, well, there's a divine, I mean, there's rather a principle underneath it. And they called it the logos. It is just a, it's a powerful principle. It's kind of the soul of the universe. Heraclitus is one of the philosophers who said that logos is what I see in the cosmos. It stabilizes, it directs, it's the principle of the universe. It's, it's what makes everything rational. However, according to the Greeks, it was an impersonal force. It wasn't a, it wasn't a personal reality. It was just something that existed that united all of the universe. Well, John lived in a day where those two views intersected. John wasn't just Jewish, and John didn't just write in Greek. There was something else about John that had happened to him because he had met Jesus. John was a Christian now. And so here he is writing this gospel late in his life. He's had some, as best we can tell, 50 years to reflect on all of this. And what does the incarnation really mean? And so he chooses to use logos. And when he does, this is the actual proclamation of the gospel. This is the word of God. This is the son of God, according to John. So John takes a word that Jews and Greeks believed everything started with. If you were to ask a Jewish theologian or a Greek philosopher in the first century, ask them, how did everything begin? They would say, logos. That's how it began. That the Jews meant one thing, the Greeks meant another. 
John steps in the conversation and says, you're right. Everything begins with the logos. He says, however, <laughs> let me tell you who the logos really is. It's not an it. The logos is actually a person. There's divinity associated with it. As a matter of fact, John will go on to say, and we'll talk about this next week more fully, the word, the logos, became one of us. That's the shocking news of John 1. Everything starts with the logos, but the logos is actually a person that I met. So in John 1, this is what we're confronted with. Y'all still with me? The eternal reality of the divine logos is this. It's an ontological reality and it's an ethical reality. So the Son of God is both ontologically and ethically divine. What does that mean? Ontologically, it means in his essence. He just simply is divine. Regardless of what he ever did, regardless of any action that the Son of God ever participated in, just in his very essence and in his existence, he is one with God. And then his actions reveal that. So there's an ethical dimension to his divinity. Jesus was absolutely perfect in all that he did. And he lined up all the time with God's will. Jesus, as the son of God, was never one time out of God's will. And so that's just the introduction. Now, if you were to look at this text, if we were to walk through the text, there are really three declarations in this text. Let me just give them to you quickly. The Logos, the Son, and God. John answers these questions, when and where and what? When, well, God just was. Where, well, the Logos was with God. Well, what? Well, the Logos actually is God. So he's there with God, but he actually, in the very beginning, he has no beginning. He's the uncreated one. He's absolute in his essence. And he became flesh. Now, Paul will expound upon that in Colossians 1. We've used that text already. What does Paul tell us in Colossians 1? That the word is actually Christ, the son of God. He's the image of the invisible God. And through him, all things are created. So the New Testament bears witness that the logos is actually the son of God. And so we're confronted with the eternal reality of the son of God. The Logos and creation is the second declaration made in this text. Well, what about the Son of God and creation? Well, all things exist by him. Everything was created by his will. Every, so therefore, everything has intrinsic value. And so why does the incarnation matter? Well, one of the things that we learn in, in the scripture is this. Creation matters because creation belongs to God and the Son of God was the creative agent of the Trinity that brought ex creation into existence. And so creation actually has value. Human beings have value, intrinsic value, simply because they reflect the will of God. In other words, creation, whatever you want to think about, as beautiful as it is, is significant because it reveals the glory of its creator. However, there are problems with creation today as a result of the sinfulness of humanity. Creation has gone awry. Well, guess what? The Bible teaches us that the Son of God has come to redeem creation. Well, since he is the one who created in the first place, he has the authority to reclaim it and redeem it. And that is John's opening testimony in this text, that the Logos is God and the Logos is the creator of all that is. And just like the Bible opens with the creation story within the beginning, John opens the recreation story with in the beginning. And he points us to the very one who has the authority and the ability to reclaim everything that's broken. 
And then finally, the logos in its relationship to darkness. John says, here's the truth about the Son of God. He's light. Well, you know, the Bible opens in darkness, doesn't it? The Bible says the Spirit of God hovered above the darkness. And John now says, when the Son of God began activity, when the Son of God began to act on behalf of the Trinity, guess what was brought into existence? Light. And light dispels darkness. And John's testimony is that when that light came, it also brought life. He doesn't explain or account for the darkness. What he does is he just boldly proclaims that the light is going to overcome darkness because darkness is limited. Light always prevailed. How much darkness does it take to overcome light? We don't know. But we know this, just a little bit of light prevails in darkness, doesn't it? <laughs> you think about it, you know, our granddaughter has been spending the night with us the last little while because she's been ill. And one of the things that she likes are night lights. Do you know what I'm talking about? Guess what my wife likes? Dark, okay? And guess what about me? I, I don't care. I could sleep on this pulpit, you know, and um, I, could, I could sleep with y'all, you know, in the pews. I can, I can sleep anywhere. But um, some of y'all didn't get that, but it, we'll just keep going. Um, but it's amazing to me, once it gets dark enough and your, light, your eyes kind of get adjusted, in other words, isn't it amazing how much light that little night light can produce if it's really dark? In fact, you can't overcome it. It just takes over a room, even though it's really small. Well, John says the Son of God brought light, and that light, that life that he has introduced, he's the Son of God. And he is the creative agent of the Trinity, and he is the one who's come to reclaim it all. And so this conversation that we'll continue next week on a deeper level is powerful. Just how much trouble did God go to for you, just at what length would he go to for you? Well, it turns out he would go this far. He would actually send his son for you. Praise his name for that. And so at Christmas time, we're celebrating the incarnation. I just wanna make sure you and I as believers know the depth of the incarnation so we can communicate it effectively with the culture that needs to know its message and have their lives transformed by it. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, today we, we stand in awe of the miracle, the depth of the story of redemption, which is at the heart of Christmas. And so we just pray that we as believers would fully understand, Lord, what the incarnation really means and how people's lives have been changed forever because of it. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.